You know, yesterday we celebrated a sort of earthly freedom, but I'll take this freedom any day. The freedom that has been expressed in this time already is just wonderful. Well, I wanted to uh, talk to you just a little bit more about union. Um, after I spoke about a month ago, I think it was four weeks ago today, uh, some of you asked me, will there be a part two? And I hadn't really thought about a part two. And even when Dorman said, uh, asked me if I would speak today, I wasn't even thinking about a part two. But as you'll see in a few moments, uh, I have reason that I needed a part two. So I'm just, if you'll allow me, I'll let you listen in while I talk to myself. Uh, a month ago, we talked about three things. One is the baptism into Christ. And we saw how Paul's description of the Israelites as they came out of bondage in Egypt and being baptized into Moses, his use of that term, we saw how that could help us understand what it means for us to be baptized in Christ. We saw how our baptism into Christ brought us into union with him and that it's a once-for-all time finished, accomplished fact. And at that same moment in time, we went through an exchange with Jesus. Uh, among other things, we exchanged the destiny we could have had uh, in a life without him to the destiny that we now have with him. And what's really awesome is to think he gave up his destiny that he could have had without us because he wanted to exchange that for the destiny he has with us. That's just amazing to me. And as a side effect, he took our sin upon himself. We got our righteousness, his righteousness in return, and so forth. We've talked about that quite a bit. So your baptism, your exchange, your union with Christ, those are all finished, accomplished facts. They never change. They're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But what can change from day to day, however, is our awareness of those things. That's where we come to this part two. Part one, we were looking at the biblical truth about these things. Part two, okay, so how do we walk in it in real life when real life confronts us? That's what we want to explore this morning. By the way, before we get into that, let me just clarify one thing I said last time. In the declarations at the end of the service where I would um, say a phrase and you would repeat after me, we got to one of them that I think might have been a little confusing, and it, partly it's because punctuation doesn't come across in the spoken word, and it's a little hokey to do like this all the time. But I said, vengeance is mine, with quotes around it, comma, says the Lord. And I didn't want anyone to get the impression that now that I'm in union with him, that <clears throat> vengeance is mine, <laughs> little old me. And I, I think there was a little bit of a question about that, so I just wanted to clarify that. I hoped it helped. Everybody loves a good love story. Countless movies and books portray a, maybe a shy young man or a shy young woman who's trying to catch the eye of someone who caught their eye. And we see them making small gestures at first to, to try to get the other person to at least notice who they are, the fact that they exist, things like that. And if those first small attempts don't succeed, we see them getting a little more bold in their uh, advances toward that other person. And the screenwriters and authors are very good at drawing us into the story. We begin to identify with that seeker. Uh, we we want to see them succeed in, in catching that other person's attention and affection. 
And in fact, uh, often in the movies, we groan when something bad happens. You think it's just about to happen, and then something comes up that will cause it to, to fail or seemingly fail. But all those things just make it that much better when it finally does work out in the end. We all love a good love story. Well, this morning I want us to look at the greatest love story of all, which involves looking at the greatest lover of all. I suspect that all of us at one time or another have thought of God as someone that we have to please by making our behavior fit a particular standard. We've all seen him that way, undoubtedly. But this morning I want us to see the Lord as the greatest lover who is constantly seeking to woo the object of his affection. I want to start the story at the the place where the Lord goes to prepare a place for his bride. Now, when you hear that phrase, go to prepare a place, you might be thinking of what Jesus said to his followers right before his, his crucifixion. But I want to go back to way, way before that, a time when... uh, Even the world had not been created, but he wanted to prepare a place for his bride. So he began by preparing this planet called Earth. And as special as this newly formed Earth already was, he prepared an extra special place right in the middle of it. I'm not sure how to define the middle, but he he made this extra special place where he was going to court his bride. Well, imagine his excitement in his heart. He's thinking about his bride as he puts every rock, every hill, every tree, every brook in its perfect place. No greater decorator was there ever. Before the seeker has even fashioned his greatest creation, he's already prepared the garden as a place of intimacy. I don't know about you, but if I'd never heard that story before, but had heard someone set it up like that, I think I'd hardly be able to wait to find out what the next act in the play was going to look like. I would be anxious to see what object of this seeker's attention was so special that he would create a universe, a solar system, a planet, and a special place on that planet specifically for the purpose of courting this special someone. And if we had never heard the story before, we might scratch our heads when we would see two unusual trees right in the middle of that garden. And we'd wonder when we hear him tell his creation, stay away from that one tree, it will cause you harm. It will cause you harm that is great damage. So why would he put that tree, we might wonder, in that place of intimacy if it would bring them harm? And then it begins to dawn on us. He knew, he has made such a wonderful creation, he knew that he could not force his love to be returned to him. That's why there had to be two trees in the garden. He wanted to give some time for them to get to know him and begin to trust him. But the choice was up to them on whether they would choose to say, yes, I do, in which case they would partake of the tree of life and the marriage would become permanent at that point. Or they might choose to go their own way. We talk about exchange. 
we talk about exchange in the context of fallen, sinful human beings. But what about Adam and Eve before they fell? Did they need exchange? They were perfect. God had made them perfect. I would submit to you that they did need exchange. They needed to be willing to exchange this life of courtship they had with the Lord for a life of marriage and deep intimacy with the Lord. Sometimes I think we believe that Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, everything was ultimate. It was, it was perfect, but it wasn't yet the ultimate. They had to say, I do, to the one who was trying to woo them. Well, we know the tragic conclusion to that garden courtship. Instead of exchanging courtship for marriage, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They separated themselves from him. They chose to go their own way by eating from the tree that would give them a knowledge that was harmful to them in that phase of their relationship with the Lord. So God blocked the way to keep them from getting to the tree of life in order to protect them and their future descendants from existing permanently in that state. Yes, the tree of life is that powerful. It would make it permanent. Instead of seeking his forgiveness, though, they were afraid because of their sin, and they hid themselves. Well, let's fast forward to another scene in which we see the seeker wooing his love. In this case, we see that she's in jail. Actually, it's worse than in jail. She is in deep slavery, in bondage, in Egypt. He rescues her with his mighty hand. This time he doesn't put her in a lush garden where everything is just like it was in the Garden of Eden. He takes her someplace even better. The Bible calls it a wilderness. Now you might be wondering, how could a wilderness possibly be better than the Garden of Eden was? Well, a wilderness is a place where there's no way to survive without a provider, without a constant source of nourishment and protection that comes supernaturally. The Lord wanted to take his bride away to a secret place with no one else around, and he wanted to teach her to love him and to trust him when they saw that he provided everything that was needed. He wanted to show this young nation of Israel that he was both willing and able to be her provider. He wanted her to trust him completely. Just like their ancestors, Adam and Eve, they were afraid because of their sin, and they stood at a distance. The gap between this holy, almighty God who had just rescued them with a mighty hand, who could kill all the descendants of Egypt, uh, all the firstborn of Egypt uh, in an evening, and who could slice the sea in half so they could walk through on dry ground, that gap between him and them was just too big in their minds. They were only able to see this lover of their souls as one to be feared and not trusted. In Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19, we see they trembled and stood afar off. This very one he was trying to draw close, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, Moses, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us or we'll die. Well, God knew their frailty. He went along with that for a while, but he wasn't going to let it go on like that forever. 
we see just a few chapters later in Exodus 25, 8. He says, make me a sanctuary, but notice why he wanted the sanctuary. So that I may dwell among my people, that I may dwell among them. Notice God's motive in this. He wanted a sanctuary, not just as a place where he would be exalted, although of course that was part of it. He wanted to dwell close to his people. And this sanctuary, earthly sanctuary, and all the sacrifices and all of that would provide the protocol which would allow them to draw near to him. So I hope what's coming through so far in this message is that he is the seeker. We often think, boy, I'm just seeking God and it just doesn't seem like I ever quite get to him. He is so madly in love with you. He is the seeker. His pursuit of you is relentless. So the point to concentrate on right now is he desperately wanted to dwell among his people. The garden, the tabernacle, many other scenes in the Old Testament, those things were real. They were actual physical events, but they were also shadows of a greater reality that was to come. That gap between holy God and sinful humanity was just too much for the masses to bridge and share intimacy with him. The corruption they inherited from their father, Adam, kept them from any hope of lasting intimacy with an incorruptible God. And that's why God had to wrap himself in human flesh and come to earth. He didn't come to redeem sinful flesh. He came to kill it so that he could redeem us in our spirit, in our souls, in our bodies. He came so that there could be a new birth, a birth from above. And this time the birth was going to be of incorruptible seed rather than the corruptible seed. And at last, God could have that intimacy that he had been longing for. The moment Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was split. And the book of Hebrews tells us that the splitting of the veil revealed that the way to unhindered fellowship and intimacy was now open. Hebrews 10 Starting in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. Notice the intimacy words there. Enter the holiest, the very place where God is. Verse 20, By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. More intimacy words. Let us draw near. That reveals a closeness like a small child climbing up into mom or dad's lap and just enjoying being loved on by them. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, Because we are faithful? No, because He is faithful. He did it all from beginning to end. He is the one who sustains it. So what does this intimacy look like? Well, for one thing, it's the opposite of standing at a distance. Adam and Eve stood at a distance because of fear. The nation of Israel at Sinai stood at a distance because of fear. The only reason we would stand at a distance from the Lord today as believers in Christ is because of our own fear of our unworthiness. But that means we're not believing union. Perfect, perfect love has cast out all fear. Also, intimacy is 
drawing my identity from Him and not from any other source. The world, the flesh, the devil all try to tell us, don't they? You're lacking something. You're lacking something. Keep at it, though. You'll get better. Keep at it. And that's the garment stained by the flesh, as Dorman talks about. Intimacy is also drawing his identity from him and not from any other source. What did Satan do in the garden? He put doubt about who God was into Eve's heart. And, and she began to believe that, and that caused her and us all these problems in, in Adam. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you have thoughts about the Father that you don't see reflected in Jesus, those thoughts need to be cast down. God is good all the time. He keeps no record of wrongs, not yours, not mine. He's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. He's not counting your sin against you anymore. He wants you to rest in Him as you are right now. Not thinking, I can rest in Him once I get cleaned up a little bit better. He wants you resting right now. Let Him take care of any needs that need to be repaired in your heart. He will do that. You can't fix it. Descendants of old Adam can't fix old Adam. I like the way one teacher put it. You can never behave your way out of the predicament that being born into Adam got you into. You can't behave your way out of that predicament. It requires rebirth. Now, at the beginning of the message, I mentioned that our baptism in Christ, our exchange, our union are all once-for-all accomplished fact. But I also said that our awareness of those things is subject to change. Let me tell you a personal experience I had a couple of weeks ago, which shows just how easy it is to slide away from walking in awareness of this union. I'm going to start with the paradox. What I learned through this experience is the only thing that I've been missing is the fact that I'm not missing anything. In Christ, you are not missing anything. We know and we wonder aloud sometimes why we aren't seeing a greater level of healing and deliverance. We're thankful for every time we see someone get set free from a problem in their body, a problem in their soul, in their spirit. But we want it to happen more frequently, more consistently. But what I'm learning is that when I focus on what I'm not seeing, I enter into a place of real vulnerability. I discovered this in a very real way a couple of weeks ago when I went with a friend to a men's meeting. It's a, a weekly men's meeting every Friday morning sponsored by a ministry in a very great ministry in Amarillo. And the leader of the ministry, who's a very fine gentleman, he spoke for just a couple of minutes that morning, and then he showed us a video that was a teaching by one of the most well-known healing evangelists in all the world. The Lord has really blessed this guy's ministry. Uh, after the video, the, uh, the leader of the group wrapped it all up with some profound words, and as I drove home, I thought, this is what I've been missing. This is the key to greater fruitfulness in the kingdom. I made extensive notes. I made a copy of them, gave, gave them to Marilyn. I was certain she would be just as impressed with them as I was. But her discernment meter moved into the red when she read them. 
Only five days earlier, I had stood right here and preached a message called, Your Union Dues Are Fully Paid. And perhaps I misunderstood the message I heard from this global healing evangelist, but it seemed to me that he was saying I was missing something, that I had to pay a price if I was ever to get into the deepest things of God. In other words, it seemed that this man whose ministry has been wondrously blessed by God was saying to me, and maybe it was just me, that the price of my union was not fully paid, that at the very least it needed some polishing, and I started to fall for it. Is there a price to be paid for greater intimacy with the Lord? Well, I suppose you could call it that. I suppose that when the Lord presented Eve to Adam for the very first time, imagine, he could have said to Adam, you are to be fruitful and multiply. But it won't just happen, Adam. There's a price to be paid. There's something you must do before you and Eve can bear children. There's a price to be paid. Here's what that price looked like. Adam knew Eve. And she bore a son. That's how we should look at any price that is to be paid with our Lord to have intimacy with Him. If we see it as a chore, then something is wrong. I fell into the trap of thinking that if I would just be more diligent by praying more earnestly and more strenuously, then God would move me into a greater area of fruitfulness. No. Imagine God coming to Adam in the cool of the evening on Adam and Eve's second day anniversary. And Adam kind of gets him off to the side where Eve can't hear. And and he says, "Um, Lord, I know you said there was something we needed to do. And, well, I, or I should say, we did what you said. And I have to admit, it it was awesome. It was was really awesome. But uh, we haven't seen any results. We want our relationship to be fruitful and all, and we have really enjoyed our time together, Lord, but I feel like I'm missing something because I haven't seen any fruit yet. Pretty silly, huh? The fruitfulness is the natural byproduct of the relationship. Shouldn't that be the model of our spiritual walk with the Lord? If we doubt that Adam and Eve's physical relationship is the model to follow in our spiritual relationship with God, All we have to do to correct that is spend some time in Song of Solomon. And in Ephesians 5, it's very, very clear. I'm becoming convinced that being fruitful with the Lord will come only when we discover that that relationship with Him is to be as natural and as desirable as Adam knew Eve. Now we can get hung up on the illustrations God chooses to to teach us about this. Song of Solomon says, Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Isn't that almost too graphic to think about in church? His left hand under my head, his right hand embracing me. That's not a description of a casual game of Parcheesi. And especially as men, we wonder, how can these graphic images possibly be a picture of our walk with the Lord? How is that possible? I think maybe the only way to get past that, that stumbling block, if you will, 
is to realize that the most profound physical encounter, the number one profound physical encounter that's ever happened in the history of the world, is only a wisp of a shadow of what awaits us in our spiritual walk with the Lord when we quit striving and let Him lead. Well, everyone's talking about homosexuality and gay marriage these days, and I appreciate the words that have been spoken already, right on target. Many followers of Jesus are talking about this as though they're shocked that the descendants of fallen Adam are behaving like, well, like descendants of fallen Adam. If we're going to preach against homosexuality and gay marriage, could I simply suggest that we use the very same sermon that Jesus used when he preached against those things? Let me know if you find one. I haven't found one yet. Please understand, we must always declare all the truth of God's Word, but preaching against sin is not all the truth of God's Word. In fact, it's possible to preach against those things until we're blue in the face and not only not see many positive results from it, I believe we will preach ourselves into irrelevance and ultimately we'll be charged with the hate crime. Now, if that's what comes when we're doing what the Lord tells us to do, bring it on. But let's make sure He's telling us. But I believe that when the world begins to see that what awaits them is a supernatural encounter with the living God that is profoundly greater than anything they've ever imagined, then He will take care of their indwelling sin just like He's taking care of yours and mine. He will take care of that. If we deny that Jesus will deal with their sin, then we must have fallen into the trap of thinking that we have somehow done a better job of whipping our own behavior into line with the law and the world just needs to buckle down and follow our example. But that's not good news to those who are not in relationship with God. If anything, it truly is a hate crime because we're telling the world they must do something that they are utterly incapable of doing apart from Him. We're telling the world that in order to please God, they must um, fix their, their own problems first, and then God will love them. How could it be called love to tell the world that? No wonder they've left the churches in droves. How can I sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth will go strangely dim when I'm telling the sinner Here, let me help you turn your eyes upon your sin. If we do that, the only thing that will grow strangely dim is the power of Jesus in their life to deal with their sin. What the world needs is a glimpse, just a glimpse of what they're missing. And if we are not partakers of that awesome supernatural intimacy with Him, then who can tell them? Who can tell them? There's a verse in Ephesians. I'm going to read it from the Amplified because uh, it really draws out the, the underlying Greek words. Paul says that you may really come to know practically through experience for yourselves the love of Christ which far surpasses mere knowledge that you may be filled through all your being unto all the fullness of God 
that is, that you may have the richest measure of the divine presence and become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. A body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. Does that sound like intimacy to you? It sure does to me. So what does it look like to walk in union with our Lord? I think it's like this. Jesus knew his bride. And that includes you and that includes me. Jesus knew his bride and she conceived and bore much fruit for the kingdom. But first the bride must submit to his overtures of love. And that, dear friends, is what I'm after. I've caught a glimpse, but it's just a glimpse. I want much more. Let's pray. Dear Father God, how can we even get our minds wrapped around this? It's impossible. So I pray you will witness in our spirits. Show us that you are the great seeker. You are the lover of our souls. You love us spirit, soul, and body. You've always been after us. Help us, Lord, to trust, to relax, and let you be God in us that we may bear much fruit for the kingdom. May we seek you first of all, above all other wonderful things we could be seeking. You are first. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you. I'm dismissed. <laughs>